But we are in the final chapters of the book of Romans in our study together. And the last section of the book as Paul is moving on to his concluding remarks uh, to the church at Rome. And in chapter 15 of this letter, um, as like I said, if you turn, go ahead and turn that with me. We started looking at these concluding remarks in our last study, beginning in chapter, or verse 14 of chapter 15, where Paul had some words of commendation for this church at Rome. We were reminded that this was not a church that he was rebuking, but this was a church that he had high praise for. If you look at verse 14, he said, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to also to admonish one another. So again, he was not rebuking this church in any way. He was not treating them harshly in any way. He tells them here that he was convinced that they were full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to admonish one another. So they were a church that was functioning as they should be functioning. And he went on then to explain that the things that he had written to them in the letter, even though he had written boldly on certain points, wasn't because this was brand new to them, but because it was written as a way to remind them of these things. He wanted to, wanted to remind them and give them further instruction into the gospel. And that's what the majority of the letter dealt with. The detailed explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the church at Rome was a church that was functioning well and having the knowledge and ability to do the things that they should do. In fact, Turn back with me again to chapter 1, and we read through the entire intro last week. We won't do that again this week. Um, but many of the things that he says in the conclusion are things that he touched on in his introduction, which was 18 months ago for us, so it's nice to be reminded of some of these things. But again, we won't look at the whole thing, but look at verse 8 of Romans chapter 1 where he started off saying to this church, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of a son, is my witness, is how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, he says. So their faith was well known, even to Paul. And we talked about how Paul had never visited this church. He knew some people there. We'll see that when we get into chapter 16, that there's people there that he gives greeting to. But he was well aware of their faith. He was thankful for this church. And he says there that he had a desire to come and visit them. And this will all come out in the section that we look at today in chapter 15, because Paul will bring up this visit, this desire to visit them once again. And to have an opportunity to minister with them. And that's not just for him to minister to them. When we think of Paul going someplace, we think of him going there so that he can do something or provide them with some type of benefit. But it's also for them to have an opportunity to minister to him as well. In the section that we'll look at today, we're going to see examples of true fellowship. Believers fellowshipping, sharing in each other's lives, and we'll see it in several different ways here. And Paul is going to give us a glimpse into what that looks like. So remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, specifically commissioned to go to the Gentiles. And he made mention of that back in chapter 1 also. 
as well as dealing with it in chapter 11. We looked at it there. But now in his concluding remarks, he makes mention of it again. And it was one of the things that we looked at in the previous section, verses 14 through 21. In verses 15 and 16, he talked about the grace given to him from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul's main ministry was to carry the gospel to Gentiles. And he had done that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, he said in verse 19. He had taken the gospel all the way basically up to Rome, or at least the, the far edge of that. If you look at a Lyricum on a map, and obviously I don't have the ability to show you a map here, but you've all got maps in your Bibles, I'm sure. But if you look at where a Lyricum is on a map, you'll see that it's on the very eastern edge of the Adriatic Sea. You have Greece, you have Greece, then you have the Adriatic Sea, and then you have Italy after that. So Illyricum is right on the edge of that Adriatic Sea. And right on the other side of the Adriatic Sea then is Italy. So to further spread the gospel in the direction that Paul's ministry had taken him thus far, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, Rome would certainly be in the right location for him to finally come and visit them if he was to expand out further to the west. But he started to clarify why he hadn't yet come to them by saying in verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So as one spreading the gospel, as Paul's ministry was, Paul was visiting those who needed to hear the gospel right? He was going to the lost. And that makes sense, right? Because it's the lost that need to hear the gospel. They're the ones that need to be saved. So Rome, as a faithfully established church, they were already saved, right? That was already an established church, which meant that they became lower priority on his list because they hadn't made the cut because you don't go and present the gospel to people that already are saved. So as we come to verse 22, we're going to see Paul continue on with this same line of thinking as he explains his reasoning for not coming to see them yet, why he hadn't visited them yet. So he says in verse 22, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. So this is what he's been building on these last few verses, why he hasn't yet made it to Rome. Explaining to them what his ministry was and the importance of it and the responsibility that he had to prepare those Gentiles who had never heard the gospel to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. So he says, for this reason, he hasn't yet been able to come see them. Now, we first saw an inkling of this in chapter 1 um, when we looked at that uh, just a few minutes ago. But, in, but a few verses later, he goes on to say this as well in verse 13 of chapter 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he told them early on that it was his plan to come to them, but again, he mentioned in chapter 1 that he had been prevented. Now, there, we just knew that something had stopped him. He didn't want to give us any detail. We didn't know if, if Satan had blocked him in some way. We didn't know that if he'd been thrown in prison. Maybe he'd gotten sick. Maybe he was 
suffering some persecution or animosity that was preventing him from coming. He didn't give us any details at that time. But now here in chapter 15, he gives the reason. And it's not really any of those things. It's not what we would come to expect. It's simply that he had other responsibilities to attend to. His main focus of ministry was, was giving, was a priority for him and had prevented him from coming to see them. So his mission was to spread the gospel where it hadn't been heard before. But in Rome, again, they were already established, a mature church that was full of knowledge and truth. So in verse 23, he says, But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for so many years a longing to come see you, this was a, this was a long thought out thing for Paul to want to come see them, He says in verse 24, then whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now what? He was done in the region that he was in. Like we saw in verse 19. He had fully preached the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the area of the world that had been saturated with the gospel. Churches had been established and Paul had already accomplished his purpose there. Now that doesn't mean that every single person in those areas had heard the gospel and Paul had, had, had specifically spoken to every single person, but he's saying that his ministry is completed there. There are churches established throughout that whole region, region that can now carry on the work that he was doing. They can evangelize. They can see other people saved. So now what? After that whole region has been evangelized, after he has fulfilled his mission there, now what? After all that hard work, after all the trials and persecutions that he had gone through in that section, in that area, Paul can finally say, phew, I'm done. He's going to retire in Rome. He's going to find a nice place, relaxing place to serve his remaining years, find a church family that has it all together, and he can just sit back and, no, no, that's not his plan. That's not what he says. What does he say in verse 24? He says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing. He's basically saying, now I'm done here. I've accomplished the ministry this far. Now it's time for me to move on and go further west, go into Spain. And as I go that way, I pass you and I will see you in passing. So why go to Spain? Because in Spain there are Gentiles. Because in Spain, the gospel needs to be heard as well. Paul, again, was the apostle to the Gentiles. And there were Gentiles yet to be prepared there as an offering and more sacrifices to prepare and offer to the Lord. That's how he saw Spain. It was ripe for the gospel. Where was Paul's focus? Was it on himself and on his own own desires? I mean, after reading all the things that Paul went through in his missionary journeys that we have throughout Greece, you would think, boy, it's time for that guy to kick back, find a little villa on the beach somewhere in Italy and and relax. But that's not what his desire was. He had a desire to come to Rome, and yet he hadn't been able to because of his calling from God. His focus was on the call that he received from God to be a minister to the Gentiles. So he plans to visit them, but not for a long visit, because his ultimate goal is to present the gospel and go on to Spain. 
Now, he hopes for two things in verse 24. One, he says that I will see you in passing. As I come through, I will see you. But the second thing he says is to be helped on my way there by you. So Paul not only has this mission, this, this desire to go and present the gospel in Spain, but he's enlisting the help of the Roman church in his ministry there. Paul hopes that the Roman church will give him assistance as he goes into Spain, assistance that would include everything from prayer, which we'll see in a little bit, to even financial support. As they are a mature church, Paul has no hesitation asking them for help, for assistance in this. There's no indication that this is a difficult request for him, even though, again, this is a church that he'd never visited. It's not like he had been in this church, he had been a member of this church, and now he's writing back to them to say, hey, I want you to help me in my ministry there. By and large, these were people that he didn't know. So he sees this church as a body of believers who would be more than ready to assist him as he is carrying out the Lord's work, that work that is being accomplished by Paul, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's a mature church that recognizes that prayer, that physical assistance, material assistance, it's really all one and the same. Paul's saying, I need help from this body of believers. So it's all about believers doing what is right for other believers and serving one another all in the love of the body of Christ. Now, we don't know for sure if Paul ever made it to Spain or not. There are some writings from early church fathers that seem to indicate that he had gone there. So it's possible, but the Bible doesn't specifically talk about it. We can't say with absolute certainty that he made it to Spain. Some even believe that what Paul was really talking about here was that he was, going, he was looking to use Rome as a home base for his ministry to the West. If you recall, he was really based in the, in the area that, um, where his first missionary journeys took place, in Antioch. And so from Antioch, he would leave and go out on his missionary journeys and then come back there. So that was kind of his home base for that area. But as he moved further west, some would say that maybe he's looking for Rome to fulfill that, because obviously going to Spain and then all the way back to Antioch would be a bit of a stretch for him. He said again in verse 11, of chapter 1, when he was talking about coming to see them, he says, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul recognized Rome as a church that not only could he benefit in a way of, of imparting a gift to them and encouraging them, but that they were people that could benefit him as well, encourage him, edify him, provide assistance to him. So it's possible that Paul was looking to them to be his launching point as he planned to continue his calling and his ministry out further west. So Paul's finished in his current area. He desires to come to Rome on his way to Spain. So great. When's he coming? Are you packing your bags, Paul? Look at verse 25. He says, but now... I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. Well, that's the wrong direction, Paul. Jerusalem's that way. You're, we're over here. He had just one quick thing to take care of first, which, of course, wasn't really a quick thing at all. Paul was on a current mission for the saints in Jerusalem that took priority over everything else, even his calling to the Gentiles. 
Paul had a primary role. He was focused on that role, but he also had other responsibilities as well. And here was one of them, an essential ministry that needed Paul's attention. So he was being a servant to the saints in Jerusalem. Primarily, the saints in Jerusalem were Jewish believers, right? The, 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 the church in Jerusalem would have been comprised of almost 100% Jewish Christians. That's who primarily made up this church in Jerusalem. So what's happening here is that Paul was taking contributions from the churches that he was establishing, that he was planting, which would have been Gentile churches, in the regions in which he was ministering, and taking these contributions back to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were basically living in poverty. And he saw this as an essential ministry worthy of his personal handling. And we see more detail in verse 26, where he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Macedonia and Achaia, provinces in Greece, and again, don't have a map, but look at the maps in the back of your Bible. You have Macedonia, which was in the northern part of Greece, and Achaia, which was down in the southern part of Greece. The church at Corinth was in Achaia, down south. The church at Philippi, for instance, was up in Macedonia. So there are at least two areas that he mentions here that were, that were pleased, it says, to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So these saints in Jerusalem were impoverished in their own city. Many of those who were Jews who accepted Christ in Jerusalem came under financial hardships. Jerusalem would have been a very difficult place for people to accept the gospel. They would have lost jobs, lost family support, lost possessions and homes. This was actually fairly common among the Jews who accepted the gospel for them to be in this type of position as persecution and hardship often followed them. The writer to the Hebrews in the 10th chapter of that letter talks, about, uh, talks to his Jewish readers about the hardships that they had experienced. In Hebrews 10 verse 32, he says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is writing to Jews, right? And, and he's talking about the things that had gone on in their lives, things that had happened to them as they accepted the gospel. Now, the writer to the Hebrews is writing warnings to these people because many of them are tired of the persecution. Many of them are tired of, of putting up with these things and are in danger of going back to Judaism. So that's really why he writes that letter. But, exciting, but accepting Christ at this time in their situation had a great cost associated with it, much as it does in certain parts of the world today. We don't see it as much here. We're a little sheltered in our lives here. I mean, we can look out and we can say, well, things are getting worse for us. But there's parts of the world out there today where if you accept Jesus Christ, your life is in danger. We're not there yet. But that's the, what, the type of situation that they were in. We live in a country where we're somewhat sheltered from that. But much like in Paul's day here, the Jews in Jerusalem 
had it bad. The Gentile churches didn't have such high sacrifices to make. So what do we see? These Gentile churches helping out their brothers and sisters in Christ with a financial contribution is what's going on here. And not only did they do this, but he says that they were pleased to do so. It wasn't Paul coming in and begging them for these things and them grudgingly giving it. They were pleased to do so. And he'll mention that again in the next verse, in verse 27. As we've seen in the book of Romans, there, are a certain, there was a certain amount of tension between Jewish and Gentile believers. This was one area of which he reminded the, remote, the Romans of their responsibility back in chapters 9 through 11, explaining the relationship of the gospel between Gentiles and Jews. Even down in verse 31, we'll see, which we'll see here shortly, there is some question in Paul's mind over whether this gift that he's bringing to these impoverished people, if it's even going to be accepted by them. Well, whether it will be well received by these Jewish believers since it's coming from Gentiles. But even in light of this tension, these churches were willing to give to their brothers, making a contribution to them in love. Now that word for contribution is probably a familiar word, koinonia. We know that word in, in, uh, in the context of fellowship, right? We talk about koinonia Maybe you've been at some point in time in a koinonia group, a fellowship group with someone. But that's the word he uses here. Sharing in common. By using this word for this financial offering, he is showing that this, this money, this contribution, is an expression of love and unity that exists between the Jewish and Gentile believers. Really a fellowship that exists between believers, regardless of Jew or Gentile. In the body of Christ, we have that fellowship with one another. So these Gentile churches aren't just throwing money at them. They're sharing in common with the Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem, showing that spiritual bond that exists between them. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about this same contribution. He also mentions it in 1 Corinthians in the 16th chapter as well. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, he, he starts off talking about this. So look with me at uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So here he's talking to the church at Corinth, which was in Achaia. And he's talking now about the churches in Macedonia. So remember, he mentioned in chapter 15, Achaia and Macedonia. So he's talking to Corinth here. He says that in a great ordeal of affliction and their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this is their attitude. This was the attitude of the churches here in Macedonia. Not only were they willing, they were pleading as to be a part of this contribution, begging them to participate in this. 
even in the face, it says, of their own ordeal and poverty. It's not like these were the rich churches that Paul had established. They had their own problems. But yet they were, they were begging to participate in providing for their brothers in Jerusalem. There's a bond between Jewish and Gentile believers. In Christ, we are all part of the same body. And again, it doesn't just go to Jewish and Gentile believers. There's a bond amongst us as well as believers in Christ. And one of the ways that this bond is shown here, that Paul is, is referring to here, is that this is what the Jewish believers needed, and that's what the Gentile churches were eagerly willing to supply. There was a financial or material opportunity to serve them here. And we should take note of this attitude. This, is, this should be an example to us. This is one of the reasons why I like the intros and the conclusions to books, because there's examples here that I think sometimes we gloss over. We think, oh, the meat of the book is done, and I said, okay, it's the conclusion. He, he says hi to this person, hi to that person, whatever. And then we kind of gloss through some of these things. But we should take note of these examples here. If my brother in the body needs a word of encouragement, I should be willing to supply that. If he needs prayer, I should be willing to pray for him. If he needs physical help, I should be willing to give it. If he needs financial help, should I be willing to give it? I think a lot of times when it comes to that last one, there's a little bit of a, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. I'll do those other things, but now I don't want to take my wallet out. There are many ways the body of Christ is edified, is built up. And finances are simply one of those ways. It's another way that believers strive to accomplish God's work here on earth. As much as we might wish otherwise, and I know a lot of times I wish otherwise, things cost money. Have you ever noticed that? There's very few things you can do that doesn't cost money these days. But things cost money. And we won't get into a political discussion, but things cost a lot of money these, these days. That's just the reality of living in the world. We don't have a building of our own here, right? We meet here in a school. We wish we had a building of our own. I wish we had a building of our own. I'm sure we all wished we had a building of our own, but that costs a lot of money. We have a building fund. You can see that in the, in the bulletin. We have a building fund, right? That's just the reality of things. In order to function in this world, things have to be paid for, and it's the same way today as it was back in Paul's day. There were financial needs in the church back then. There are financial needs in the church today. And it's the responsibility of us as believers to bond together in unity to provide for those needs. Verse 27. He says, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. So here he, he, he goes a little bit further. He emphasizes again, the Gentile church were pleased to do it, but yet there's more to it than that. They also recognized that they had an obligation, indebtedness to the, Jew, to the uh, believers in Jerusalem. They gave voluntarily, but they were also indebted to them. They chose to fulfill their obligations voluntarily here. So he explains this obligation in the second half of the verse. He says, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Paul has a play on words here in this verse in the last, and it doesn't come out in our English translations. 
But in verse 26, we read about the contribution, which we noted was the word fellowship, koinonia. The words that we have here, have shared, for the, if the Gentiles have shared, that's part of that same word. That's also koinonia. So what does this mean? It means that what we have is that the Gentiles are pleased to fellowship with them, in verse 26, in financial things, in material things, because the Gentiles have already fellowshiped with them in spiritual things. There's a reminder here that there is a fellowship, this sharing in common going on between believers. Believers in, in Achaia and Macedonia, believers in, in Jerusalem. The Gentiles are pleased to fellowship materially because they have received spiritual fellowship along with the Jews. Now, how has that happened? What's he talking about here? What's the spiritual fellowship? Well, we've already talked about it. We've already seen it. Go back to chapter 9. We'll start there for a minute. If you remember in chapter 9, that's where Paul had started talking about Jew and Gentile. And he talks about, in the first verses of chapter 9, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And look down at verse 4, and he talks about these spiritual blessings that belong to them. In verse 4, he says, "...who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen." The plan of God centered around what people? The Jews. Right? That's who he first came to. They received the promises. They received the law. They received the fathers. And it was from them and to them that the Messiah came. He came through the nation of Israel. The promises to Abraham were for the Jews. Now, blessings from that, those promises didn't end with the Jews. And that's what we saw in chapter 11. Turn over with me to chapter 11. In chapter 10, we talked about how the Jews rejected the blessings and the promises that God had given them. But then you come to chapter 11, and he's talking about the plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile. Look down at verse 11. He said here, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? This is talking about Israel. They didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So because of the transgression of the Jews, their sinful rejection of their own Messiah, salvation has been offered to the Jews. And we've talked about how God has temporarily turned his attention away from Israel and turned it to the nations to present the gospel there as well. Now look down at verse 17. We see this here again as well. Here he's talking about the branches, the vine and the branches. But if some of the branches, he says in verse 17, were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you and, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So here Paul was making the point that the natural branches, the Jews, the ones who were the focus of God's salvation blessings, were removed from that place of focus, and instead the wild branches, the Gentiles, were grafted into that place instead. So he says here, grafted in among them, because there was, a, there was still a remnant of the Jews, still some Jews who were being saved, even though the gospel was now being primarily focused on the Gentile nations. 
Now, that's what we've seen here in the church at Rome. As we've talked about this throughout the letter, there were both Jews and Gentiles in this church. It was primarily a Gentile church, but Paul has made it clear that there were also Jews who were part of this church. So the blessings of Israel were being enjoyed by believing Gentiles as well. And that's where we, the camp that we fall into. Again, I've said this before, I won't ask for, for a, anybody to raise their hands, but I'm going to guess the majority of us here are not Jewish in nature, but are Gentiles. So he then went on in verse 18, if you're still in, in Romans 11, directing his comments toward these uh, grafted in Gentile believers, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So really, his conclusion to this situation, you owe a debt to those natural branches. Don't be arrogant towards the Jews who had received the, first, uh, the blessings in the first place. Why? Because of what we saw back up in, chapter, in verse 11. Salvation being offered to the Gentiles was to make Israel jealous, to punish them for their transgressions. He even went on to say in verse 12 that their failure is riches for the Gentiles. The blessings of the gospel have all come through the working of God to the Jews. That's what it's come through. That's what the plan has worked through. The kingdom to come was a promise to the Jews. Even the new covenant was a promise to the Jews. The Messiah, he came to earth as a Jew to the Jews. Turn over with me to the book of Galatians as well, the third chapter of Galatians. He, Paul talks about this here as well. book of Galatians deals with a lot of the same things that we see in Romans. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It was through the promises to Abraham that we are able to receive the blessings of salvation. That doesn't mean that the promises given to Abraham are given to Gentiles instead of to the Jews. It's talking about the provision in the Abrahamic promises that already applied to the Gentiles, to the nations. I'm just going to read this. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. I want you to see this for yourself. This is one of those things that there's lots of discussions on today, so I, I, wanna, I want you to see it rather than just have me read it here. Genesis chapter 12, that's where we have God making his promises, making his promise to Abraham, who was Abram at the time. His name hadn't even been changed yet. Look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So he promises him here land. And he says in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation. Promises him descendants, right? He's going to be a nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so you shall be a blessing. There's a blessing that comes as part of this promise. Now verse 3, 
And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God here promises Abraham, or Abram, land. He promises him seed or descendants, and he promises him blessings. And a part of those blessings, he tells them that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just his descendants, but all the families of the earth. And that doesn't contradict or take away from any of the other provisions. It's part of what he says here. It's simply part of it. It's the part of it that applies salvation blessings to the nations, those who aren't the descendant of Abraham physically. In other words, to the Gentiles, to us. So there is a provision for the nations in the promises given to Abraham. So back in Romans chapter 15, where am I going with all this? That's what Paul is referring to when he says they, the Gentiles, are indebted to minister to them, the believing Jews in Jerusalem, also in material things. This is what he's referring to. Now, we shouldn't look at this as a salvation tax. It's not like he's saying, well, okay, now you owe them money because of this. That's not what he's saying. This is a voluntary indebtedness of gratitude. Even a recognition of mutual fellowship that we have together with them. It was because God's work through the Jews, because of their Messiah, that God has graciously allowed us as Gentiles to partake of these spiritual blessings. So now when these believers have a need that involves material things, these Gentile churches are more than willing, begging to be included in this gift back to them in material things, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's what's going on here. Giving back to the Jewish believers materially is, is the least that they can do. It's something that they can do from where they are. I mean, obviously, they couldn't jump on a plane and go help their brothers in, in Jerusalem back in those times, but they could give to this fund to be taken back to assist them. That's their attitude. It was seen as an obligation, but it was an obligation that they, were, that they were pleased to fulfill. And that's how our spiritual service should be as well. When we look at obligations that we have, we are obligated to serve our Lord. But our service to the Lord should never be, oh, I've got to do it again. Oh, oh not again. is it that day again? Is it Sunday again? That should not be our attitude. It should be, Getting up early, like on Christmas morning, I get to go and serve the Lord again today. Please help me serve the Lord again today. I mean, these, these believers were what? Paul came in accepting this contribution. They were begging him to be able to give to this contribution, to this fund. How many, how many times do we have people come in here, oh, what areas of service do you have for me? Where can I plug in? What do I do? I mean, sometimes people have to stand up and say, you know what, we need help in this area. We need help in that area. How wonderful would it be for our church to be the church who we're turning away people? You know what? Just sit down this week. We have enough, more than enough people to serve in these areas. That's how our service should be. Willingly, cheerfully, always looking to give more, to serve more, to see what else there is that we can possibly do, to be begging to participate in some way. Paul finishes up talking about this gift in verse 28. 
He says, therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. When he has accomplished this task, he will begin his ministry to Spain, or at least that's Paul's plan, to go on to Spain. After he has delivered this gift to put and put a seal on this fruit of theirs. As we mentioned, there was some concern over how the Jews will respond to this gift. Therefore, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, is personally delivering to this to the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, remember, Paul might not be very welcome in Jerusalem, right? Because you remember Paul's history, his past. He was based out of Jerusalem as a Jew persecuting the church, right? There was some animosity between not only Paul and the Jews in Jerusalem, but also Paul and the church in Jerusalem, because, oh, he's that guy that, he threw my brother in jail. He threw my spouse in jail. He th That's what Paul had done at some point in time. So for him to go there was, was not an easy task. But he was going to verify its authenticity and to clarify its intent. And once that's done, he'll be on his way to Spain and coming along through Rome, uh, to the church at Rome. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul sees himself as a man with responsibilities. But he is convinced that his ministry to Spain is where God wants him to go next, right? That's, that's his intention. When he comes, he will have the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's a confidence that Paul has in his ministry. Now, like I said before, we don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain. We don't know that he went there. But in his mind, he made that plan, that that's what he wanted to do. Now, the Lord may have had other plans for him. We don't know. But Paul's intentions were to serve the Lord by going to Spain. And that, I think that serves as an example to us as well, because sometimes we have that attitude of, well, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Well, we make our plans. We have to make our plans. But we always also recognize that the Lord could change those plans. We just don't know when and if he will do that. So when Paul makes his plans, he talks about the fullness of the blessing is Christ. That's that confidence, again, that he has in his ministry doing the work that God has called him to do, doing it to glorify God. And again, can we say that in our own areas of service? When I go out and serve, by going out and doing this, I'm doing it with the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I know this is where God wants me to serve. I know this is what will benefit the, bodies, the, the body here, the other believers here, that will edify this church. Do I have that fullness and that confidence? We are not called to be apostles like Paul was. Maybe we're not called to be missionaries. We're all called to evangelize, but maybe we're not called to go to another country and, and be uh, evangelists somewhere. We're probably not going to be called to deliver a large contribution to a distant church somewhere. But we do have our own responsibilities here. In this church in which we've been called to serve, is, this, is our focus on what we have to do right here? Is it our priority to edify this body? Is it our priority to serve the Lord here? I pray that it is. As those who are called by Jesus Christ, saved by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel, we have an obligation to serve our Lord, but it's an obligation that we should be well pleased to do. And we're actually going to end there this morning because I don't think I have enough time to get through the last section 
in the next 10 minutes. So we'll end there and then we'll take that last section uh, next week, talk about prayer. So let's close in a word of prayer this morning.